Well, welcome everyone. Today I am uh, talking with Steve Goldsmith. And Steve, how how what would you say your title at Atlassian is? Well, you have this fancy title. What, what would you say it is? I don't know if it's fancy. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, so my role at Atlassian, we have we have four big product groups. There's three big markets that we're in that are sort of established markets that we offer products to. And then my group is the fourth one, which is called Atlassian Accelerator. And we're looking at uh, uh, new efforts and new product bets that might help accelerate the growth of the company overall. Yeah. So in some sense, I, I think if I was to sit there and say, you're a guy who sits there in your test kitchen every single day and you're trying out different products and you're you're the guy who sits there and say, okay, let's release this guy to market. Let's test ride this market. All of that stuff. Is that correct? It's similar. I would actually say I'm uh, uh, I'm building the kitchen, right? Like that, we, and we invite a lot of people into it. Right. So the, the, what we're trying to do inside at last with this program is is um, kind of rethink the traditional corporate innovation and incubator model um, so that instead of one group who's incubating all those ideas, the kitchen cook kind of metaphor. Yeah. We're instead creating a program to productize ideas from anywhere in the company. So any uh, product or business leader inside the company who says, I have a I have a spark of an idea yeah. that I think we could offer as a product. How do I start that discussion? How do I get staff and research and budget and stuff to actually go pursue it? And then how do we like accelerate the good bets that that turn out to be something that really makes and and cut off the ones that are promising, but not likely to to be a uh, you know high return for us? And so yeah. that framework of helping uh, different ideas flourish into products um, is what Accelerator, part of Accelerator, uh, is looking to do every day. Steve, I am so looking forward to talking with you on this discussion, but let me back up a little bit for you. How did you get started in this industry? Uh, ha has this been something you've always been doing since undergrad or how'd you get started? Yeah, uh, so I studied math and computer science in school back in the 90s um, and graduated in 98 um, and decided to do one year of enterprise software in Austin, Texas. I grew up in Canada and uh, uh, decided to do a one year tour in Austin because there was a company there that had an interesting option. And, and never left. Um, I moved down here in, in 98, um, wound up doing 10 years of enterprise software, um, which was a really good education around a very small volume of customers with very, very complex problems that were willing to pay a premium to have them solved. So we, we would have 10 or 20 customers, right? That were all massive accounts. Mm. And midway through my career, uh, right? Actually before my second uh, child was born, completely pivoted to a consumer software business called Homeway, um, which is now called VRBO as part of Expedia. Yes, um, yes. That was like a complete 180. We had we had hundreds of thousands of customers that all paid us a hundred bucks, right? And, and so the types of technology and solutions and the way you thought about building yeah. that was just completely different. Um, and they, would, they were very, very price sensitive and very uh, relaxed on functionality where enterprise customers are the complete opposite. They're not price sensitive, but they're very, very demanding on like what this solution needs to do to run their particular business. Um, and so it, it's a really interesting balance. Those two halves of my career, when Atlassian came around, Atlassian is a very consumery enterprise product, right? It sort of has like one foot in both of those experiences. We have lots and lots of customers, but we also have lots of very large customers. And so my role in Atlassian has really been a hybrid of those two things. And I think a lot about how fortunate I was to have those two completely different experiences in the first 15 years or so of my career yeah. 
so that when this opportunity came along at the last scene where you have to kind of know how both parts of that market work yeah successful um i was able to to bring both halves of that to, to bear and and have really uh, enjoyed my time with this company okay so steve when you were a little boy right did you <laughs> even have an inkling you like putting things together or is it through legos or anything what, what did you think that you were going to do when you were a young boy <laughs> definitely a lot of lego um uh, i grew up in a in a rural part of ontario um uh where i, I joked that we had cornfields on all four sides of my house um, and you could see forever because it was just flat farmland. Um, uh, my dad was very early into technology. The part of Ontario I grew up in was uh, sort of like an hour from Detroit. So a lot of the like tier two, tier three manufacturing brake lights and wiper blades and stuff like that got manufactured in our part of Ontario and then shipped to Detroit to be assembled into a car. So my dad actually worked for a uh, air filter company that made, uh, you know, air filters for your cars. Um, and he wound up doing some of the technology stuff for them before that was really a career. That was like a, a specialist type project, not a job that somebody had. Um, so early on in my life, when I was still in elementary school, my dad had a computer at the house. This would have been early 80s um, and was responsible for helping make some of their, their early systems work at this company. Um, and then that company was progressively acquired several times over his career and his scope of technology, well, it became a, it became a profession right along the way. And I learned a lot just by being exposed to that technology early on. Um, one of his favorite stories is that I took his computer apart when I was about uh, 12 um, because I wanted to see how it worked. And so he, he came and this is like a very expensive corporate owned piece of equipment that he had, you know, special permission to have in our house. And he came home from work and I had it spread all across the sofa um, because I, I wanted to understand how it worked. Interesting. And he just came in and said, can you put that back together? And I was like, yeah, sure. So then I like put it all back together and powered it on. And he was like, that was really impressive. Now, please do not ever do that again. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Sure, you say so. It seemed like kind of an interesting thing to learn. Yes. And like, for instance, Steve, like even with Legos or putting things together, were you always a person who loved to follow the directions step by step? Or did you just love to experiment and try different things? D definitely the latter. Um, um, Legos are fun. And I actually really enjoy following the instructions of Lego specifically. But for the most part, um, I love to cook. I love to do lots of things that are very like you know, driven by taste, they're not driven by a formula, you know, and, and require kind of like experienced judgment calls. Um, so a lot of the, the stuff that I gravitate towards is the really poorly defined, um, you know, open ended experiential stuff or experimentation type stuff. Um, and that's where um, I think that the, the most valuable work that I do and also the, the most interesting how hobbies I have tend to, to fall in that same space. Now, at the same time, you're probably working with people who love structure, who love processes. How do you best work with them as well, too? Because there are some people who say, Steve, I love your ideas. Can you write down a step-by-step -step exactly mm -hmm. what you just did? And like people will say that to me. I said, I have no idea. Like when I go into a random city, they said, can you write down a step-by-step -step of how you connect with people, who you talk with? And I, I said, I don't know. Sometimes it's by gut feelings. Yeah. How do you work with people who need direction or need a process? actually had that happen this morning. I made some pizza on the weekend and I shared a picture with some friends and one of them said, can I have the recipe? I was like, I don't, I didn't really, uh, let me see if I can remember what I did. <laughs> and they were like, what do you mean? You don't follow a recipe. I was like, no, I knew directionally like sort of the ratios that I wanted. And I, and I tweaked it based on the last time I made it, but there wasn't like a, you know, a recipe per se that I was following. 
Um, and, and it was just a very different perspective on that stuff. Um, in general, I try um, very hard to focus on um, outcome, not approach, I guess would be the easiest way to say it. Like, I know that my style of working, I would be frustrated if somebody mandated a style of work to me. And, and so I try not to ever do that in reverse and instead say, here's the, here's the outcomes we're looking for. Here's the direction we're headed. Here's what good work looks like. Good work product looks like. And if you want, we can talk about the steps to, to achieve it that I would do, but I'm really trusting the other person to do the work um, or other team to do the work in most cases. And I, I want them to work in a way that's most comfortable and, and uh, efficient for them. And so, uh, you know, we were talking about sports a few minutes ago. I imagine going out and doing a step-by-step -step instructions to, to a, a player on the field and saying, this is exactly how many steps back and throws and this and that. And then if it, if it doesn't work out, they don't win the game. Like who, who learned anything there, right? The player didn't get to exercise any judgment and see if they could apply that. And the coach didn't get to throw the ball. Like it, so it, it didn't work for either party. So, so I really try to take this balance of um, here's how I would do it. And here's what I think the end product needs to look like, but I'm really relying on the discretion and judgment and capabilities of, of the individuals on the team as much as possible. Yeah. Now, Steve, did you learn that style of leadership? through experimentation because you just intuitively saw how people work or you and I are about the same age. Did you work under leaders that mm -hmm. just told you what to do and it just drove you so crazy that you said, I'm just never going to do this again. I just need to empower people to do it. Which one was it that created the leadership style that you have right now? It, it, a little bit of both, but one really formative experience I had very early in my career, like 98, 99, I had this incredible manager named uh, Neeraj who, um, who I was still in this academic student mindset. So he'd ask me to send him an update on something and I and I'd write him these like pages of email, right? Like an essay about what we were working on, really in an effort to like document that I was on top of it. And one day he called me into his office and said, let's rewrite this together. And so let's like take the most important line from each of these paragraphs. We'll put that at the first line, you know, and then we'll like restructure the paragraph. So like you're, 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 your headline for that paragraph is the first thing. And he's like, now let's go through and bold that first line in each of those paragraphs so it really stands out. And then he's like, now I want you to delete everything that's not in bold because I don't care. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he goes, I trust you. I know that you're good at this. I know where you sit. You're 20 feet down the hall. I don't have that much time. If you'll just tell me what I actually need to know, not everything you know, but like the art of summarizing if I have questions, I'll come find you. Right. But like, I'm not expecting you to like show your work on all of this. I'm expecting you to like do the work and then tell me when it's done. Right. And that was a big shift for me as an, as somebody who just come out of school thinking about like the show your work type mindset of a, of a student. Um, and he was really the first boss that said, I, I actually trust you to just use your judgment. And if it's wrong, we'll try again. And it was such an empowering thing. Um, when I was like, whatever, 25 years old or something like that, yeah. um, that, that really set the tone for the whole career I've had um, of thinking about how do I have that same uh, trust and empowerment of everybody around me, knowing that instead of like two perfect things, you'll get 50 things, most of which are pretty good, right? And you can refine and the, the velocity of new ideas and new work is just so much higher if you just relax and let people experiment and go for it. Yeah. Versus, I think a lot of times, Steve, I've also worked for older bosses who just either micromanaged 
or gave me freedom. But when things went wrong, they threw me out there. And so I had to fend for myself. But when things went well, they took all the credit for it. So I started learning real fast. That's not the type of leadership I want or want to experience. But similar to you, I had I built cell towers for about 10 years. Hmm. I had this wonderful boss named Dan who really came alongside with me and really empowered me to make mistakes and learn to think on the spot. And he always told me, you got to think through the process. Don't just do it because I told you to do it. Think through why you're doing all these things and find ways to be efficiency and in some just constantly just doing what you're told. I think that that's a huge insight. And and honestly, as, as that person, and I try to be this person too, I, I measure my success in the growth of the people on my team, right? When I talk to my boss about how I'm doing in my role, I start by saying, well, look at all these folks you've entrusted me with and they're thriving and I'm helping this person and I've promoted that person and I've reassigned this person, but like I'm, I'm helping this team achieve their best work. Um, and that should be the number one thing you measure me on. Right. And, and secondly is like whatever I'm specifically like typing or doing or whatever, but like my work product more and more is not great products. It's great product managers. Right. And enabling those people to thrive in their career and go do whatever um, uh, is what I've thought about for the last at least 10 years, 10, 15 years of like, that's my number one deliverable. And I try and orient all my conversations with my boss and expectations and stuff around that versus saying it's my department and I'm going to be able to take credit for every piece of work that comes out of that department or every specific deliverable. It's I always say, if, if you like it, you should tell the team. If you don't like it, you should tell me <laughs> and, and we can try again, you know? And Steve, I also realize a lot of times God leads us on different journeys. Aside mm-hmm. from the marketplace, you and I are very involved in Christian-based ministries. Mm-hmm. For me, I spent about 18 years doing youth ministry, college, and high school. I remember, and to this day, one of the most influential, I inherited a group of young student leaders, their sophomore year in high school. And then I had them all the way to when they graduated from college and the ability to mold and watch them grow. And I realized I could sit there all day and tell these students what they need to do. And they'll probably execute. I had to learn, help them learn how to think and fail. And that meant a lot of times learning to ask questions, learning Mm -hmm. to build their confidence, learning to figure out how to stretch them. And each person was a little bit different. And I will probably say that those years, it's like when David was tending his sheep, God needed before he gave him the nation of Israel, he had to learn how to protect the sheep to go day in and day out. I learned so much during those 18 years of working with the same students and learning how to help them to grow. Now, we see that a lot with with just career development in the organization. And I do bring a lot of my like personal beliefs and, and Christian background to the office without overtly making it Christian. Like that's the balance, I think, of of having faith, but not necessarily trying to broadcast in every conversation you have in the workplace, which is a difficult thing these days. Um, but a lot of that like opportunity for coaching and, and growth comes from like truly wanting to invest in the people and believing that the people have the potential. And if you give them the chance, they'll do it. Um, uh, Honestly, if I look back at my career, some of the most frustrating and disappointing things have been not when the person doesn't achieve something, but when, when I'm not able to like help them do a thing I can see they need to do, you know, like I feel like I failed as a coach, not they failed as a player. 
you know, in, in those relationships. And when it doesn't work out, I always am reflecting for a long time about what, what could I have done better as, as a coach to help that person? Cause you can see the potential, but the actual like output is not yet there yet. Um, and how do you give them an environment? Like you're saying, an environment to go continue to learn and thrive where they have enough risk, but not too much risk and enough support, but not micromanaged and that, that art. Yeah. And Steve, I find it a lot of times, I'm not sure about you is that's the fun part for me, mm -hmm. watching a leader that, you know, has potential. Now, if you throw everything toward that person, him or her, you're going to overload them. Right. But now you're sitting there building your confidence little by little. And every single person is different. Some people you're going to need to push a little harder. Some people you're going to need to give chunks. Some people you're going to need to build their confidence, encourage them. Some people you're just going to need to be very, very direct with. But watching the light bulb go on is probably one of the most exciting things for me as I work with these guys. Oh, definitely. And especially in our kind of remote world, remote work world, the, 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 the spectrum of, of cultures and, and communities and backgrounds and education, and all that stuff that I cover on a daily basis. Um, I've got teams in Europe, all across the U.S. and, and in Australia. Um, and a lot of those people have moved from some other country to work in that spot, just like I have. And so, like, there's this unbelievable cross-section of experience race, education, confidence, uh, you know, you name it, uh, uh, gender across all those things. And so every day, if you look at my calendar, I'm doing that same sort of coaching job, but the actual like 30 minute slice is, is tailored to that person in such a unique way because you're coaching an individual, not, you know, a, a room. Um, and it's just so interesting to have that challenge every day. And, 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 and again, approaching it with the humility to think like I'm not the expert that's going to tell all these people how to do the right thing. I am the coach that's going to listen to what they're struggling with and help advise them on how they might do something different and give them the space to try it and the support to, to fail. And like, you know, let's go out there and try again. Not like I want you to follow my three-step playbook or else, you know, and, and that's really the most interesting part of my role every day for sure is, yeah. is traveling around the world on zoom and, and coaching really talented people. Well, speaking of that, a lot of times, Steve, people can't, uh, a lot of times you can't really write a manual like what we were talking about. How do you read a room? Because you're going to deal with every single day, people who are older than you, younger than you, people of different cultures, people from different parts of the world, people with different styles of culture. How do you read the room and figure out what to do? Um, it's it's especially interesting because I'm rarely actually in a room anymore. I'm I'm usually on Zoom, <laughs> and that is a whole different art to like reading the Zoom, I guess, versus reading the room. Um, a lot of times for an in-person discussion, um, well, I guess the, the the approach I take is is minimal amount of distractions. I'm actually trying to talk to the people, not talk to my slides or talk to my phone or talk to my notes or something. So I really work hard to have the minimal amount of stuff written down that's in my face that's going to distract me from just talking to a group. And you're kind of looking around, literally reading the room to see, are you reaching some sort of understanding? Are the folks like leaning in, nodding, thinking about it? Are they back with arms crossed? Are they screwing around on their phone? Like, is, are you engaging in those kind of nonverbal ways with the group? Um, but more than anything, I think the art there is having, understanding what message you're actually trying to get across, right? I might have like, five or six pages of slides or text or whatever, but I have one thing that I want the room to leave with or two. And, and 
assessing as you're talking of whether you're actually achieving that goal of re reaching shared understanding about the point that you're trying to reach, um, I think is, is the main art. Now, now in, in Zoom, it's even more challenging because, you know, nobody turns their camera off when they're sitting in a conference room. Um, but that happens frequently when you're on a, a video call, especially when you're working with people all around the world who might be juggling kids, doing dinner, it's super early in the morning. There's just some reason why they're just not, you know, excited or comfortable about having the camera on during the call, but they're participating. Um, and so it's difficult to do that. And we've, we've come up with a lot of like, you know, ways of using Zoom that help um, indicate participation without, you know, necessarily having to stare in the camera all the time. Whether you're on mute or not, whether you use the hand raise function, we use the chats, there's all kinds of other things like that. So. Oftentimes uh, in Zoom, what I find myself doing is actually stopping more deliberately and asking, you know, for, for feedback and saying, Does, is, there, is that making sense so far? Um, do people feel like what I'm saying makes sense? Is any questions or clarifications before we move on to the next section? I'm really inviting participation, which is, is different than you would in a, or slightly different at least than you would in like an in-person uh, presentation. Yeah, yeah, very good. Even with your role, a lot of times as head of products, you make new products all the time. I mean, a lot of times, even with ministries and all that, there's always the need for innovation. Mm -hmm. How then, two, two parts of the question is, how then do you, what do you look for to launch a product? And two, when do you know when to pull a product when it's just not working during the test phase? Um, I have a coworker who has a very succinct phrase, which we've adopted, which is called your right to win. Right? Like, what, why do you believe that this team or this bet or this initiative um, will win, right? And what what assets or benefits or whatever is this team bringing that will give them an advantage in the competitive space they're trying to enter? So if it's a product that says we want to go into this market, um, our, our right to win comes from the ability to price cheaper than everybody else or the ability to have this one piece of information that nobody else has or our ability to build this particular piece of technology that nobody else can do. Um, and you sort of like push on how much do we believe um, that this particular team, A, understands that and B, can deliver on it. So it's part, it's a big part, the people. Do I believe you have a, a team that knows the problem they're trying to set out to solve? Um, and then B, understands it and can execute on the opportunity um, fast enough. And that um, uh, is sort of the constant discussion at each phase of maturity because that the landscape changes up from underneath you. You may have a, a solid right to win on, on month one with the founding team and you look up at month 10 and two competitors have emerged and somebody's quit and somebody else has gone on medical leave and sort of like the composition of that equation is, is very different at month 10 than it was at month one and being, being um, I don't want to say ruthless, but that's not the right word, being pragmatic and honest with each other enough to say, do we still believe we have the advantages we had when we started this? And sometimes the math changes the other way. Uh, the competitor you thought was going to win the space uh, got bought and changes direction or yeah, has the yeah. critical team members leave. And now your opportunity is actually better than you thought. So how do you put more people into that and go faster to try and capture that? So that's kind of the dynamic we're constantly operating in. Got it. When you and I met first in Austin, I met you in person at your office. Mm -hmm. The office is long gone. Yeah. How is life different as you, what you were just saying, you're on Zoom calls all day. How do, what does it mean for you as you create a global workforce for the future? And what's that new rhythm that you had to change and develop in the last couple of years? 
Yeah, it's um, it's been a really, really interesting, like for somebody like me who's been doing this for quite a long time, the last three years has been a pretty radical shift in, in just how I work. Yeah. Um, the, the types of work I do are, are still very consistent. Um, but just like day in the life uh, is, is pretty radically different and, and in a really awesome way most of the time. Um, I joked about being able to teleport around the world, but like my, my daily or weekly, uh, you know, if you looked at Google Maps and Steve's in Austin and you're talking to somebody at the other end of that call, um, it's all around the world now. And, and every day I work with people who are, you know, far, far away from me in time zone and culture and, and background and religion and lots of other parts of their life are completely different than what I would experience if I walked out my front door um, or commuted to the office as I used to. Um, and I get to have that kind of like unbelievable melting pot of, of experiences and people every week um, because we've adjusted to this remote working lifestyle. This is a great example. You and I are talking instead of like the travel to meet in the office and everything, you know, we just pop on and catch up for a little bit and, and, and everybody goes off to their next thing, you know? Um, the downside to that is that you're, you're one click away from your next work obligation uh, at any time. There's no, none of that natural sort of like commuting or, or travel type friction of like, I have gone to work and I'm working and then I've come home from work. Those boundaries have pretty much evaporated over the last couple of years. And so, um, my commute to work is, is, you know, 10 steps from our living room and, and at any evening or early morning or weekend or whatever, there's that constant temptation to just duck in and do one or two things. And, and the, the, the natural friction that would have said, well, it's, it's Sunday morning. I'm not going to go drive downtown to the office. That would be crazy, but it's Sunday morning. I'm going to jump in and do a few emails and, and have a quick conversation with somebody on Slack and then get back to work. Like that's the barrier is so much lower that it's, it takes a lot more discipline to actually have, uh, you know, the priorities of, of non-work things come first uh, and and do sort of what I think is my most important deliverable, which is be a great husband and father and, and be kind of like a part of my household um, and, and keep work work, <laughs> not have it be like every part of your day, but but it's a thing that that pays for the, the important things, you know, uh, and that 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 discipline is increasingly difficult in the, in the remote work world. Yeah, yeah. And especially it's going to be more difficult for those individuals that want presence in the office to be able to see people in the office. Yep. There are some people who love to have people in the office where they're able to see what they're doing. But yep. now you're going to have to trust, but find somebody who fits your personality of what you want in a team as well, too. It, that's the challenge, I think, for us as a company is that if we had started with day one of, of this remote work lifestyle, then everybody would have signed up to that by, by yeah, the yeah. company. And like most employers, we sort of pivoted to that, you know, midway through 2020 and 21. Um, and so there's a whole set of employees who I'll paraphrase and say are, are sort of desperately trying to get back to the lifestyle they had in, in 2020, where they are driving downtown and sitting at their desk and having lunch with their friends or whatever. Um, and Atlassian, like many other companies, has moved to a workforce that is distributed in so many places because of COVID that even when you drive downtown, you know, for most teams, a big part of your team is not in that building. So the ways you work have to really be focused on on how you work, not where you're working. And even if you've driven downtown to the office or commuted in for from a, you know a meeting, you're still sort of thinking about how you're working with your colleagues, who may be on Zoom, who may be on camera off on Zoom, who may be uh, you know middle of the night, some other part of the world, um, who are, or who may be sitting across the table from you now. Um, 
Whereas before we really focused on where we were working, we're all going to come to this office, yeah. we're going to do this project, and then we're all going to go home. And so that that change of, of priority, how over where, is really, I think, the most significant thing that's happened for, for my industry um, over the last couple of years and for me personally. Um, yeah, it's a yeah. dramatic change. A couple of last questions for you, even in terms of a lot of times mental health, emotional health has all been huge. Have you guys had to think through and implement some of those processes? Some people have chaplains or some people have workshops. What do you guys do? We do a whole spectrum of things. Um, probably the two most interesting ones. We actually have what we call intentional togetherness, yeah. um, which is, which is a mouthful, but um, rather than sort of like having a few people trickle into the office and then that tension of like, Oh, I thought, Bob or Sally was going to come in this week. So I came in this week, but they didn't. So now I'm like kind of frustrated. And like, there's always that kind of who's, who's actually making the effort to commute. Um, we actually plan for not just like the, the events, but like from a budget and, and infrastructure kind of standpoint, like how do we enable teams to have a process and, and framework for intentionally getting the group together, having that in-person event, and then like relaxing and going back to whatever work style people need for the next little while. And so that has really helped take a lot of the pressure off of like, are we home or at work? What are we doing um, by giving a framework to do that? Um, on the other side of the things, one of the things we've done is actually help, um, it sounds crazy, but like coordinate days off. Um, we, we would have, we have like a team refresh day that most teams will pick and say, so like some of my teams are, are picking this Friday um, and saying, so instead of like, hey, Tommy's off today, but I'm not. So then I do all my work and you get a bunch of slack and email notifications. And even though you've taken yeah. the day off, you're not really getting the day off because yeah. you're, you're all of the stuff is moving along without you. Um, we've, we've actually helped give a framework for teams to say, we're just going to agree that everybody's taking this Friday off next Friday. Yeah. It's a team day off. And then everybody can actually unplug and relax and do whatever they want to do in whatever part of the world they're in without that constant burden of like, I'm probably getting behind because still doing stuff today. Yep. And those are two relatively small changes, like operationally. Um, uh, they don't sound complicated and they're really not complicated. Um, but from a mental health and just like work-life balance standpoint, have made a huge impact on our teams around the world. Yeah. Uh, just truly relax for a little bit. Hey, last question for you, Steve. When when I say what does it mean to integrate your faith into how God has designed you, made you, you're the head of product for a very, very innovative company. How has God designed you? How, how has he made you to be, to contribute to society and the world as a whole? I was talking to my wife last night about like how many uh, kind of like once in a lifetime events can you stack up and not realize that you're just blessed and, and fortunate. And, and this is, this is happening through faith and humility, not, because you're just super good at whatever you do. Um, and, and that's the general um, approach I take to these things is, yeah. is I don't, I don't believe that I'm in the role that I'm in because I've somehow like conquered every other person that could have potentially got it or some weird King of the Hill victorious thing. Um, I think I'm in the role that I'm in because I've been uh, humble and, and generous and, and, and servant leader enough to enable uh, these opportunities to come when I'm ready to, to receive them. Um, and that sort of like integration of faith that that um, I I believe I'm I'm granted um, through through humility and faith uh, the opportunities when I'm ready to to be good at them like this role I'm in um, I would not have been good at even two years earlier in my career uh, and I probably would have thought was crazy to sign up for 
three years later. Yeah. Just because of the demands of my family and everything else. Yeah. yeah. But but it happened at the moment where I was ready to receive it. And that actually happens pretty regularly for me. Um, and it's not some, you know, hocus pocus of, of trying to read backwards and tea leaves and stuff like that. But it's, I really do believe that like, yeah, um, faith is what gives opportunity and that and that being faithful, both as a person, uh, but also like to your team and to your opportunity your employer uh, is what has given me the path to grow yeah. professionally and personally, uh, much more than any like, one individual accomplishment or, or uh, you know, anything like that. But you look back a long time at your journey. We started this conversation when you lived in Ontario in a farmland where there was farmland everywhere you go. And that little incident where you took apart your dad's computer and put it all together sparked something right there. And it led to a de uh, de uh, decision in terms of decision after decision that you make. I look at my life, born and raised, my parents immigrated to Chicago in 1972. I was born in 1977. My parents didn't have a drop of money. They were so poor. And my parents sent us to church because my high school teacher says that we lack social skills. And now here I am sitting there working with all these young leaders from around the world and running four different organizations. And you wonder how God opened those doors and put you in. You're sitting there, how in the world did I get to this point? No, I sit... Um... I still have the t-shirt. So I was wandering around a job fair in 97 uh, with my sister who was actually looking for a job. And I believed I already had a, a job after I graduated. And I had brought a few resumes um, just because who goes to a job fair without a couple of resumes? That just seems like bad planning. So I printed out a few and had them in my back pocket and had handed them out to two or three different Canadian employers. And the very last table was this uh, company I'd never heard of, but they were giving away t-shirts. And at the time, that was a pretty amazing piece of swag to get from a yeah. recruiting event. Um, and so I asked them if I could have a t-shirt. And they said, well, we'll only give you a t-shirt if you have resumes. I was like, fine, here's my last resume. And I had this t-shirt and they were based in Austin, Texas. And I thought, well, I'm never going to hear from these people again. I had a few minutes of small talk with the recruiter, left and did not believe I was looking for a job. Uh, um, they contacted me a couple of months later and said, somebody's going to be on campus. Do you have a minute to talk? I was like, yeah, sure. I'm not interested in a job, but I'll talk to you. And I had a really good interview with somebody and they said, do you want to come down to Austin? Uh, which turned out to be during the final four in 98, um, in the South by Southwest. It's this incredible time to come to Austin. I didn't know anything about Austin. Um, and that I interviewed on that Friday and that Friday night, I sat next to my wife who was also interviewing for a job. So I met her my very first day in Austin. Um, and then flew home on Sunday. Um, and that kind of that Monday morning had a job offer and this this cute girl's phone number <laughs> in Austin. And I remember sitting there in back in Ontario going, I mean, maybe this Austin thing, uh, yeah. you know, should be the priority. Maybe we'll give this yeah. one a try. But like even that is just such an improbable series of steps that has changed my whole life. And like the, if I look at the improbable series of steps that that have actually resulted in almost every good thing in my life. They are like that. They're a crazy story where you're just faithful and willing to explore and take some risk and, and, and trust that you are, uh, you know, humble and, and leading, uh, you know, a path that will get you to something good. And uh, it, it continues to do so. And wouldn't you say a lot of times there are defining moments in our life and a lot of times within scripture, there are all these defining moments. You don't know when it's going to come and don't know when it's going to appear. Jesus walks up to Matthew and says, hey, look, why don't you come and follow me? He says the same thing to a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler decides not to do it. Mm -hmm. Matthew decides to do it. 
they both woke up at that day not knowing exactly what's going to have. Zacchaeus, Peter, the same thing. You wake up and not knowing what that day is, but those defining moments will define the course of your life that you never expected to. That, that's very well said, and that I think that the the willingness to listen and be humble and and receive that. Yeah, if I can do one thing, that's what I try and do every day. Versus versus the arrogance or, or confidence to say I already know what's going to happen. Nothing's going to deter me from this path. Yeah. And I won't listen to anybody. Um, so that's if I think of one single place where I think my faith and my work integrate the most, it is that willingness to to listen and, and receive the blessings that are being provided to you, uh, and know that that's that's the path to get uh, everything. Perfect, Steve. Thank you very much for all your time and for jumping on this interview here. Thank you very much too. It's great to see you again, and uh, we'll talk soon. We'll talk soon, Steve.